Swinet. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry, one that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here you have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. What makes the healthiest herds today, after you get past the base of that healthy sow herd, the, the, the generator of all the babies, after you get past that, it's discipline and biosecurity and pigmanship. Welcome to Swine Eat Podcast. My name is Marcel Gonçalves, your host for today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Gestal. Celebrating its 25th anniversary, Gestal manufactures the original wireless standalone swine feeding system. Designed by pork producers, for pork producers, they are simple, reliable, and provide peace of mind 24 7, 365. Gestal is not just an equipment manufacturing company, but a family pork production business with a slat level understanding. Hello everyone, uh, today we're going to cover uh, a very interesting topic. Our guest is Dr. Steve Henry. He's going to share a little bit of his long uh, experience um, in the swine health side of things and production. And the title of today's um, episode is a Veterinarian's Look at Lessons from the Past as We Build the Future of the Swine Industry. How are you today, Dr. Henry? I'm very well, Marcio. Thank you. Really appreciate your time. And uh, I guess to, to start things off, if you can share a little, little bit with us uh, about your history, uh, very well known in, the, in North America, uh, probably helpful to, to share a little bit of your history for those folks that are in other parts of the world. Okay. I'm a veterinarian that recently retired after 45 years of practice mostly in swine work. Grew up on a uh, diversified farm in north central Kansas. We were crop farmers and dairy farmers until about 1960 and then changed into pork production. So that started the pork production that became known as Henry's Limited, which is still in operation. Uh, My brother, my nephew, the farm has done many things over the years and uh, continues to enjoy being a part of the pork industry. Very nice. That's a long, uh, long history on the operation. Very nice. Yeah. If, uh, and then after that, uh, I know you were very involved on the clinic as well. Yes. We, uh, after I graduated from Kansas State in 1972, I went to Western Illinois and practiced in Macomb, Illinois for four years and then came back home to Abilene, Kansas and joined a couple of uh, good friends and veterinarians there in practice. And that was where I spent the remainder of my years. And the clinic grew with time and till today, I'm very proud of it. There's eight veterinarians in the little, in our practice in the little town of Abilene, Uh, the birthplace of Eisenhower, by the way. The, the clinic uh, still does a good deal of swine work uh, all around the Midwest. Dr. Lisa Tokash, Dr. Megan Potter, Dr. Trevor Martin are a part of the eight veterinarian team, but the team also deals with multiple species in multiple specialties. 
So it's, it was a wonderful uh, work experience and a wonderful group of people that I'm very proud of. Very nice, yeah, great people there, yeah, great team. Very good, and, and in your long uh, history there, uh, Dr. Henry, what would be the biggest lessons from your career? I know it'd be hard to summarize uh, and hard to pick the lessons, but which lessons would you share with us that, uh, that we need to keep an eye out for? Oh, Dr. Gonclavis, what a wonderful question. The, the thing that I guess I realize now as I'm older is that life is all one big lesson. There's not three biggest ones. <laughs> They just keep coming at you in different shapes and sizes. And it's funny, looking backward, you think, boy, it sure took a long time. But then you realize, oh, it didn't take very long at all. Hmm. So let me tell you instead how I would look at my life and pigs, mm -hmm. because I love pigs. I used to like to sleep in the farrowing house when sows were farrowing. It was just, just a good place to be. It was pretty warm on the heat mats. Yeah. <laughs> so so in, in 1960 and into the 1960s and early 70s when we were in production and I was in veterinary school, the early part of that, we uh, the pig industry was comprised of farms that essentially never purchased gilts. We always raised our own gilts. The advanced genetics of the time were three-way crosses. So you bought a white boar this time, and next year you bought black boars, and the next year you bought red boars, and you kept on going in that fashion. Those animals, what people don't quite realize today is, were sold at six and a half months of age, weighing 210 pounds. That was the target market weight. It was stated many times a, a goal was to get the back fat below an inch and the yield above 51% and the herd feed efficiency below five. Oh, wow. When you look back, that was less than 50 years ago. Imagine that. So here were, here were these, these fat little pigs, and we raised pigs. That was what we did. I remember uh, starting a record system, a hand-driven record system before computers, and I'd send out letters to my clients at the time in 1976, and the goal of the second newsletter was, let's try to get to 16 pigs per sow per year weaned. Oh, my God. And everybody went, oh, no, we can't do that. <laughs> so when you look at the world in that perspective, you go, this industry's peopled with marvelous, adaptive, curious innovative folks that can do a lot of things. So let's pivot, let's pivot to health a little bit. Health at that time, right. we did not have AI. So you purchased boars. Mm -hmm. And generally, early on, the market for the boars was local. There were local purebred breeders, and you had the arrangement, and you brought bought from A this year, B next year, C the next year. And things were pretty much as expected. The big battles were parasitism, believe it or not, internal and external. Then when the drive towards um, better carcasses began, that led to boars on a broader scale coming into play. We had boar companies uh, that, that lived on this. This would be people like Farmers Hybrid, Purina was in the mix as a feed company. DeKalb was in the mix. Well, along with that came the health problems that 
would have been a huge part of my life for years. Swine dysentery, progressive atrophic rhinitis, APP, others. And how are they moving? Well, it was boars. We moved boars all over the place. Mm-hmm. And it got so bad that uh, by the 80s, it was seriously an issue of depopulation, repopulation. That was our health tool. The SPF world was around at the time. And if and we at Henry's dabbled in a, we depopulated and went purely SPF, but learned the lesson that others did too, that breakdown was pretty horrific. And the SPF animals being negative for atrochorinitis and mycoplasma, along with parasuas, I might add, were introduced into conventional herds and they took one look around and said, you know, I think I could just die. And they did. So that that walks us forward to to about the late 70s, okay? The world of bacterial diseases, um, some of the vaccines were in their infancy. Well, some of them still are. I'm not a I'm sort of a vaccine agnostic unless they really are good, and there are so few of those. But we lived on antibiotic. My generation um, knew how to raise pigs with antibiotic because that's all we'd ever known. We didn't know anything else. Well, today, your generation is going to learn the exact opposite lesson, aren't they? Okay? Right. So what happened in the early 70s? Well, it was the invasion of the English. Uh, Ken Woolley and PIC arrived along with uh, Northern Pig Development with the white female. She was wonderful. She was uh, half landrace, half large white, highly prolific, and we didn't know how to take care of her and starved her to death essentially for some years. But that was the beginning of I could really have more pigs. And that, that's really what started the march upward for PSY in the breeding herd. Not without a lot of bumps in the road, but that became the next step with multiplication now becoming a big part of it. By the middle of the 80s, we're, of course, now in the thick of pseudorabies eradication. Um, we're still battling with those other bacterial diseases. We're still doing depopulations to try to get rid of them. And in many cases, that was pretty successful, excluding just a few diseases that hung on to give us fits. Those all kind of morphed together in the early 90s when FERS uh, began its march through the industry. So that kind of that gets you through the first 20-some years of my 45 years. Very nice. Wow. What came after that? What comes after that is when things really started to move further into the uh, knowledge that we can do production on a larger and more efficient scale. And a lot of pieces went into that. The um, first thing to realize is that in early, in the late 1970s, we had 680,000 pork producers in the United States. Today, we have less than 60,000 pork producers in the United States. So if you're, a, if you're a veterinarian or a service provider or a salesperson, 
think about the early times. You had an unlimited population to talk to because you didn't talk to the pigs. You didn't talk to heads. You talked to the owners. It was the heyday for selling anything. Today, you have, thanks to the tremendous work of my friends at Kansas State and their research, University of Minnesota, Iowa State, Illinois, Purdue, South Dakota State, Minnesota, you name it, all of these wonderful land-grant research people took us places we could never have dreamed of going on our own. We're the, the producers were able to, to take that information and run with it. And once it was realized that health had to be there to make genetics valuable, I think that uh, was the big watershed moment. And I credit Dr. Hank Harris, along with other friends and colleagues, for coming up with the line that, with two things Hank said that still stay true today. One was health trumps genetics. And the second thing was the famous Harris Health Ladder, which says, wherever your health is today, there's only one direction it can go, and that's down. <laughs> you, can't take, you can't take a thick herd up. So AI solved the Bohr transmission problem, which we then promptly replaced with the guilt transmission problem. Dif different problems, different effects, but still... The movement of animals was and remains the biggest disease vector. Right, right. That makes sense. So, so those those were those were the three lessons in one lesson, Mauricio. I'm not sure that was real helpful, but it it was uh, very nice, uh, incredible how how you can summarize three four decades there in in five or ten minutes. I love that, Steve. That's very helpful for me and, and I'm sure for the audience as well. And so we, to, to link on top of that, as, as we get into the health, um, what do you see or what do you sing, um, Steve, as the, what do the healthiest herds have in common to maintain that great status? Well, obviously, as a believer in the Harris Health Ladder, you have to start with high health. And... If you're not there, it's very difficult. To, the high health of the breeding herd, you, that is the driver for many, many things down the grow-finish line. So that one has to be there. Now, with the other advances that came with the uh, intensification of production, when getting them out of the outdoors, and in splitting things into multi-sites so that the various ages of the pig population all don't congregate together on the same farm, which is the way that many diseases, that's, if you're a disease and you're trying to make, make it in the world, you want nothing more than to have the entire range of ages of your target population sitting right there in front of you. Because when the older ones become immune, you say, oh, heck, I'll just switch over to those guys. So if you're a disease, that's perfect. Well, when we broke that chain with off-site nurseries and wean-to-finish barns and batches and not commingling pigs, all of a sudden, the health sustained itself at the level of the sow herd unless something came in uh, laterally. That's been a key, key part of it. 
the healthiest what, what what makes the healthiest herds today after you get past the base of that healthy sow herd the 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 generator of all the babies after you get past that it's discipline and biosecurity and pigmanship the people have to love pig they have to love being in the barns and they have to be quick to determine something's wrong and then figure it out i've always been i've always been so intrigued with environment and how that works with pigs i love playing with controllers and barns and different things as we've watched them evolve through the years but if you keep a pig warm dry and draft free which i think was rule one back when we were in college if you keep them that way all the time and comfortable so they're cool as well when they're big it's amazing how healthy they remain we can create conditions that that decay health and take us down the health ladder. But modern producers are very, very good at uh, controlling those things. And I'm, I'm so impressed with that. That makes sense. Yes, and now as, as we get, uh, I guess that one of the latest uh, on the whole biosecurity arena has been the, the feed side of things. Any, any comments on that side, Steve? I think that Cassandra Jones at K-State walks on water for even tackling the problem. <laughs> and because it's, it's so difficult. Their studies with PED and the contamination of a feed mill are just still mind-boggling. And we're pretty sure Seneca virus worked the same way. In the old days, we thought that TGE moved like that. In fact, we were pretty sure of it, but we were just sure of it because we we're always sure of our opinions, not because we have the science. Well, <laughs> with Dr. Jones's work, we've got science and the discipline that people are putting into mills around the world is long overdue. It's still just in its infancy. I know that it's another one of those things. We're all human. We hate change. If I'm running a feed mill, the last thing I want is somebody slowing me down. Well, guess what? Biosecurity is not fast. It wasn't fast when we started baking trailers and, and washing them and disinfecting them. It wasn't fast when all the employees were lined up at the showers. It's just a painful thing. However, it's so effective that to not take these lessons and run with them is, is pure folly. Very nice. Well, um, Another question I have for you, Dr. Henry, is what should, we, what should we be watching as we build the future of the swine industry? Oh, I've got that. I've got an opinion there. You know, the wonderful thing about being old and retired is you've got lots of opinions, but few people care. So it's nice <laughs> when people like you call and ask. <laughs> I think this is what we've got to watch for. And this is the century of the environment. I firmly believe that on many, many fronts. And if you say, well, what do we got to do with it? Well, we've got everything to do with it. In that, in that venue, uh, Peter Best is a writer, longtime writer out of Britain that was also a speaker at meetings. And I recall him standing up in a meeting uh, years and years ago saying, with some heat in his voice about the poor job people were doing about marketing. He said, gentlemen, pigs produce two things, pork and manure. And you market the same way you handle manure. When it's overflowing, you haul it. Well, 
that's a good reminder that the other thing pigs produce is manure. If you go back to the, you know, the K-State Swine Nutrition Guide as a K-State graduate, uh, the old, not the latest version, but the version before it was out at a time when we marketed 250-pound pigs, okay? And so I took 2,500 pigs, a wean to finish barn, marketed 250 pounds, and that in that era, 3.6 feed efficiency was it. So that took 900 tons of feed, in which we included 12 tons of monocal. We're worried about nitrogen and phosphorus. Nitrogen goes down in the soil profile, phosphorus goes horizontally in the runoff. So there were 12 tons of monocal and the nitrogen that was there from soybean. Fast forward to the latest swine nutrition guide. Now, if we market 2,500 pigs, the same pigs, at 295 pounds at 2.5 feed efficiency, we only had to use 760 tons of feed, which only had three tons of monocal in it. Thanks Thanks also to synthetic amino acids, the nitrogen amount dropped radically. So we've done our part in constantly using technology to reduce the manure uh, content that has to be dealt with with crops and land. That said, the land is the end answer that the industry has to be watching for in the future. Whether it's owned, leased, or rented, you can't, you just can't uh, contract away the manure long term. That that's going to be as much of your production as the as the pork chop is, and so that has to become something that the industry locks in solidly on, so they become as close to environmentally neutral as they can. Otherwise, the risks, to me appear to be extreme. We'll manage the health problems. People worry a great deal and should about ASF, CSF, FMD. Guess what? We've done a pretty good job, actually, when you put the top people to work on it and you put biosecurity in place. We produce pigs in spite of those diseases and all that other list I gave you. We'll do that. The environmental environmental side, we're I'm proud of where we are. We're not near far enough along. And that one is going to have to be on our front burner. Wow, yeah, that's that's a great, uh, you know, people always talk about manure and sustainability, but I think you you hit the, the nail in the head. That uh, makes a lot of sense, Dr. Henry. The reason I'm optimistic, Marcio, about that is the other thing pork producers are great at is capturing profit. And they'll sit there and look at how many ways they can capture profit off of the manure they produce as well as the pork. Right, and and if you think about the phytase usage and, and synthetic amino acids, all of those had the two benefits, the one the environment, the other one the economics, and, and it's, it's much easier to to have adoption when, when those two work in the same direction, right? I believe so. And, you know, people still say, can we get to a one-to-one feed efficiency? And when I first heard that, I thought it was crazy. I don't think it's crazy. Well, one-to-one, yeah, that'll be... Uh, there, there's the, the first week after winning, they, they are close to that, right? Or maybe even when they are cycling. There's, there, there are some biologic systems that come very close. And as we know more, 
will keep pushing down feed efficiency. In my lifetime, I've watched feed efficiency fall to levels I cannot believe. Couldn't believe. And growth rates. And it's, it's not one thing. It's everything. We'll just keep that, that arc of progress will not stop. That makes total sense. That's the trend. As, uh, as we move here, Dr. Henry, for the questions from the audience, we have two questions. One is from uh, Jamil Fassin from Brazil. His question was, uh, Dr. Henry, what are your thoughts on the interaction between winning age and health? Oh, I've, I've long been a big proponent of older weaning ages. This goes way back into the 70s. The late Dr. John Hurchin was doing a lot of work on reproduction. He was a grad student of Al Lehman's and brilliant guy, went on to Pennsylvania. And he was working on the efficiency of the sow and rebreeding. And he had this wonderful bunch of research that just kept coming up with the same answer. If you want the most pigs out of a sow in the next litter, you wean her at 28 days of age when pigs are 28 days. And if you expand that now to what we know about the pig, absolutely for the pig, older age is, I think, what should be our goal. I think the minimum should be 24 days. Now, I'm going to have to go sideways on you a little bit here and do something I talk to students about when I say, how do you, a student, figure out how old a pig is when he's weaned? Oh, well, I just look at the card. Right. Well, no, it isn't quite that simple. Uh, this goes back to the era when we did we did 10-day weaning to try to get around diseases. We did all the induction to farrowing. And today, we believe whatever the computer says. But if I come into the barn and see a brand new litter of pigs today, was it born yesterday after we left work? Was it just born this morning? Was it born after 113 days of gestation, 117? How do you know how long gestation was? Uh, we, we are, we're stuck with those kind of pieces of knowledge. And so we really need to work to, I believe, to push up to try, try to make it a 24-day minimum. And some have done that. My nephew, for one, has. It simplifies. Why does it do so many good things? First of all, there's a bunch of work. The University of Wisconsin, the gentleman's name escapes me about maturation of the gut and the pig. You'll know the work. Um, it, it, you've got to get them over that hump to get a, an intestine that can really handle the diets we're doing. And it simplifies the diets for the pigs. It allows uh, immunity, gut level immunity to change, the biome changes. That's what the pig really wants to do. And we ought to pay more attention to the pig. People are fairly smart, but pigs are a lot smarter. So wean age got to go up. Now, everybody hates to spend the capital. I understand that. But we hated to spend the capital on every other thing we've done. So what's new about this? <laughs> right. Yes. And, and, and it's, it works, right? There's no question that it works. Very nice. Um, the next question we have... Uh, Dr. Harris from Germany, uh, Brock Sersen asked how to deal with Haemophilus parasites after winning. That's a really tough question. 
as you know and as he knows, or he wouldn't ask the question. Mm-hmm. The, I think step back in time and read a little bit more on Haemophilus parasuus because it's been with us forever. Uh, it was, in fact, the biggest killer of adult SPF animals when we moved them into conventional herds back in the day. Interesting. I've got lots of slides and pictures of boars, six-month-old boars, that were all dying of Haemophilus parasuus. So they have to be, they're exposed from their mother, they're carrying the organism and some level of immunity from the mother. What really makes Haemophilus parasuus go in the post-wean pig is, first of all, a helper. And the biggest helper for Haemophilus parasuus is influenza virus. Influenza virus just absolutely sets them up for this Pathogen that's endemic gets hanging around on their tonsils. It's not like it blows in from somewhere. It's with the pigs. So that's the first thing. The work on immunity has been, with artificial means, has been very weak. It's not worked very well at all. So we've relied heavily on vaccines. Let's back up to the question one about wean age. When do pigs get influenza? Well, we start to hear a few pigs in the last week before the three-week weaning, starting their little coughing in the farrowing house, don't we? If you just go in there without anybody bothering you and listen to the pigs, you'll hear them starting to do that little cough. Well, virus is starting to move because some pigs didn't get a whole lot of uh, passive immunity from their mother against flu. I was born late in the litter. I didn't get much colostrum. She wasn't very immune, blah, blah, blah. Well, those are the cedar pigs that then will start the whole process going in the nursery as it cascades with declining passive antibody. And and parasitis is just looking for an opening. They're all the time. It's just looking for that opening. So it's much like the argument we have about rotavirus. When do I want my pigs to have rotavirus? Well, I like them to have it before they're weaned. Thank you very much. They get over it nicely. If you move the wean age up, you'll be surprised at the way some of these other things improve themselves. Not entirely, but that's the one. I didn't answer his question because I don't know how to control parasitic post-weaning once it, once it happens. But it's getting things lined up ahead of time that's been the most helpful for me. From the immune standpoint and, and uh, yeah, not having other pathogens open up in the doors. Uh, so that, that makes sense. Very good. Really appreciate that. Um, then now we transition to the questions, Dr. Henry, that we ask uh, every guest, every episode. And the first one is, what is your favorite swine-related book? Oh, that's really easy. Managing Pig Health, the late Dr. Mike Muirhead and the late Tom Alexander wrote the original version. And now uh, Dr. Carr has given the second edition. Managing Pig Health is something that every barn, uh, barn manager, veterinarian, Anybody associated with the industry really needs to read. It's most closely tied to what really happens in the barns. I, of course, like diseases of swine, and I've got a soft spot for that. But Managing Pig Health is the most useful book I have on my shelf. Very good. Very good. How about the book that is unrelated to swine? What's your favorite? 
Well, my current favorite that I just finished is Factfulness by Hans Rosling. He passed away in, in 2017, but it's a fascinating book on the progress of the world civilization over the last 200 years. And it's amazing to see what we've really done. You feel so much better about the world. It's kind of like looking back over the pig industry. 200 years isn't very long. And it's a phenomenal book, well worth reading, and it's worth listening to Hans Rosling's podcast on the TED Talks, The uh, the Miraculous Washing Machine, I think it's called. Oh, wow. Okay. I'll check it out. Very nice. And, and then the third question, uh, Steve, is what do you think sets apart successful swine professionals? Oh, intense curiosity. They love pigs. They'd rather be in the pig barn than anywhere else. And they love talking about pigs, and they love calling up folks to get information. I like nothing better than all the expertise that I've been able to tap in through the years of colleagues, experts in other fields. All my friends at K-State, that's what really has has vaulted. I see young veterinarians coming through that they're wonderful in their care of the animal, their curiosity about the animal, their care for the people too, but the pig is the most important. And that's what I think drives success and, in my case, happiness. I loved it. Very nice. That makes total sense, and uh, wow, um, really appreciate all your insights there, Dr. Henry. This is uh, uh, 45 years in, in 30 minutes or so, so uh, we really appreciate that, um, your generosity there with the information you shared and your time. So thanks a lot for, for your help today here. I've enjoyed it, Marcio. Take care of yourself.